and you hit the head, right? And, you know, it has a little scratch or a little graze. Most people say, oh, the helmet is still good. No, the helmet is not. You need to throw the helmet away and you need to buy a new helmet. A helmet is only good for one crash at 15 to 20 miles per hour. And that's very important. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe, the place to learn about how to navigate the healthcare system and understand health in plain language. I'm your host, Nikita Boston Fisher, a health educator with a passion for meeting people where they are. Today's guest is Dr. Mikel DeSantis, a neurosurgeon based in the UK. Today, he came by the cafe to discuss strokes and head injuries. Grab your warm drink and let's get to the episode. Hi, Mikel. Welcome to the Good Health Cafe. Thank you for coming. Uh, thank you, Nikita. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So I would ask you to introduce yourself, but I know that you're a very shy guy. So I'm going to introduce, <laughs> I'm going to introduce you. So our guest today, everybody, is Dr. Mikel DeSantos. He's a neurosurgeon whose journey is international. He's originally from a small community in Georgetown, Guyana, where his love for the outdoors, volunteering, and close relationships formed have shaped his personality and how he approaches his profession. Mikel trained in medicine at the University of Guyana, where he received the prestigious Prime Minister's Award for the best graduating medical student. He underwent neurosurgical training in Jamaica, received distinctions in anatomy, and completed it in Bristol, UK. He is a passionate anatomy teacher and cares about passing on medical and neurosurgical knowledge to the next generation of students, surgeons, and the larger community. In his spare time, he is a keen artist, tennis, and chess player. Now, everybody, <laughs> I have known Mikhail, oh my gosh, maybe since we were 12 or 13. <laughs> Yeah, he was the best man at my wedding and I did not know some of this stuff <laughs> to me he's just a childhood friend I did not realize he was so accomplished so Mikhail welcome it's really cool to have you on the good health cafe to talk about neurosurgery and the brain today well, thank you Nikita thank you for a very very warm and uh, interesting <laughs> introduction yeah. and it's quite true you know when you're when you were childhood friends and you know each other for a very long time, you your professional world tends to be completely separate, and you just you know you focus on the the, the nice jovial the things jokes. in life. Totally agree. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. So, Mikhail, why did you pick neurosurgery and medicine? That's a very good question. So, I chose medicine because of my a recommendation from my father, actually. So, my initial thought was, okay, you know, I'm going to be an engineer. A lot of my friends were in, going into engineering, so I think it was an obvious choice to run with the crowd. My father gave me a piece of wisdom that says, you know, Mikhail, I think you have a, a personality that can affect others in a very positive light. And I think just give it a chance, see if you like medicine and if it is possible, if you like it, pursue it. And, you know, that's what I did. I, you know, I entered medical school and I, from day one, I loved it. Because I didn't think that there'd be so much patient interaction from the get-go. And to see people as people, you know, it might sound strange, but see, you know, other person's plight and to go into their shoes is, was really, you know, an eye-opener and something I've always been passionate about since. As I, after medical school, I knew that I wanted to do surgery and I knew I was good with my hands, but I, I wasn't exposed to a lot of the surgical fields until I went to Jamaica and... Have you ever seen a cartoon 
you know, in those cartoons, when someone has a very brilliant idea and a light goes off in your head, uh, you know, my experience in neurosurgery literally is that. I was on the ward one night as an intern, and there was this young girl, a 14-year-old girl. Her, you know, the images are burnt in my mind. She was a victim of a road traffic accident right in front of the hospital. So she, she was able to receive treatment quite quickly. And she had a, a neurosurgical procedure in where they had to take off, remove a piece of bone to allow for brain swelling to occur. And she, had, she was in a coma for two to three months and she was having seizures. She was, you know, making very slow progress, but it was not a pretty picture uh, up until that point. And I remember there was a quite caring nurse on the ward who every day cared for this young lady, you know, gave her a shower, you know, bathed her, fed her, you know, uh, talked to her, comb her hair, rub her hands. It was, it was real caring. And I saw this day after day. And then uh, this one night where I'm on call and I, uh, myself and the nurse serendipitously were alone on the ward. And I heard a voice said, you know, call out, calling out a name. And I look around and I don't, you know, this, all the patients are quiet and sleeping and it's three o'clock in the morning. And I look around and I didn't see any where this is coming from. And then I heard it, you know, a couple of minutes pass, I hear it again. And then all of a sudden I look over to the nurse and she looks over to me and we look over to the patient and miraculously we knew which patient to just come from. And so we rushed over to the bedside, seeing this, we, we just sat in anticipation, you know, waiting to see what will happen next. And then this young lady opened her eyes and started calling the name of the nurse that has been taking care of her for the past three months. And, you know, tears came to both of our eyes. We hugged each other. You know, we were like, oh, my God, we we're panicking. We we're freaking out, you know. And uh, from that then on, I was hooked. <laughs> It was, it was, it was neurosurgery and I was completely, it didn't matter what I needed to do, like how much pain I would have to go through in residency. <laughs> neurosurgery would be the training I would, you know, choose for. And that, that, you know, my journey from, from then to now has been nothing but a lot of those small miracles and has been, you know, quite yeah, as a blessing to my life. So that's why I chose neurosurgery, to be honest. <laughs> that's a really cool story. Actually, though. I guess she's out, she's walking, she's back in school. Oh, well, just, just to hear the end of the story, you know, I, so I was not her doctor. I was just a surgical intern, general surgical intern at the time. And so eventually she got discharged or she went to a rehab center. And then when I rotated back on neurosurgery, a year later, I was in clinic and I saw a young lady coming in, you know, she's, she's walking with a walker and she's coming into clinic and I recognized her and I didn't want to say anything. And she, she ran up to me and she hugged me in clinic in front of the consultant and everyone. And we were just like, Oh, thank you so much. You know, you, and I was just so excited. And, you know, it's just like, it, it was very, it was very good embrace to see that, you know, someone had such a good outcome and they, the memory is so amazing that, you know, they even understood the care, even though people thought they were, she was comatose. And I think that, that, that is the impression that is just so beautiful. You know, a lot of people give up on people who think they're very sick or ill or in a coma, but just simple caring for people goes a, such a long way. And people remember that, you know, so it's just an amazing journey for her. And, you know, she's very grateful and I am, I'm very grateful for the, for her even remembering who I was. <laughs> an awesome story. Tell me, make the distinction between a neurosurgeon and a neurologist. 
You're both brain doctors of sorts. So tell us the difference. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I'm going to try not to be as biased as I, <laughs> as I possibly can. But in simple terms, you know, neurosurgeons perform surgery on the brain and neurologists don't. And that's a very coarse outline. But because both, both neurosurgeons and neurologists deal with conditions of the nervous system, you know, conditions of brain, spinal cord, their nerves, and even the muscles. But neurosurgeons deal with a lot more of the organic problem or structural problems, rather, the structural problems, and while the neurologists would treat more infections. So the neurosurgeons may treat a tumor, and you treat the tumor by either surgery, open surgery, and a neurologist may treat an infection of the brain with you know, medication. Now, that's a gross outline because there's some certain other conditions such as stroke and what's not that can be treated by both neurologists and neurosurgeons. So in a sense, it's a very overlapping field now currently, but we tend to treat more structural lesions versus the neurologist. What do you mean by structural? So I mean like tumors or abnormal vessels that are pressing on the nerves or abnormal vessels such as aneurysms or in... If you have a disc prolapse and that's pressing on the nerve to give you leg pain, you know, that's usually can be treated with surgery rather than medication. Medication may help for some time. And usually a lot of conditions that require a neurosurgeon have gone through some, some neurologist to treat them. And then neurosurgery tends to be the end of the spectrum of treatment if a neurologist is unable to help them by a, giving a medication. Cool. Thank you. What's a stroke? <laughs> okay. In the first definitions of what a stroke is, you know, it, it is something that happens acutely. So the reason I got the name stroke is that it is paralysis that happened to a person and it, it's quite sudden onset, no other trigger. So it's like a stroke of insight. You get an idea and, and the same thing is true for a stroke. Essentially, the first thing that everyone needs to know is that it's a medical emergency and it's a serious life-threatening problem. And it happens when there is not enough blood flow going to a part of the brain. Now, the reason why I put medical emergency and serious life-threatening illness first off is because that is when, you know, there are various things that persons can use to identify when it is that they need to go to the doctor. You know, if you're having signs and symptoms of a stroke, you need to go to the doctor. You need to call, any, meaning you need to call the, an ambulance service or go directly to the A&E to be, the accident emergency to be worked up. You know, in the UK, it's for the general population, we, we tend to use something called the fast mnemonic. I'm sure in, you know, most places in the world, they have their own mnemonic, but in the UK, we use fast. So fast stands for F, face, A for arm or arms, S for speech. And T for time. So if you notice a person or even yourself, this is, this is the beauty thing about this mnemonic, uh, is suddenly suffering from numbness of the face and drooping of the face in terms of the mouth or the eye, that's F. Yes, you, you, you may be having a stroke, yeah? A, arms, if the arm is getting ting, you know, weakness, and things are falling out your hand and this is progressing, yes, you know? S, speech, if you're starting to speak garbled or slurring of your speech, or even if you're unable to understand instructions, that's key as well. And T, time. Time is brain. And it's a very, very important concept because if you have any one of those symptoms, you can have one. You can you, you call 
the emergency services. And it's very, very important that that happens as soon as you identify these things, whether it be yourself or uh, another colleague or um, a loved one, because the sooner that we can treat strokes is the better neurologic, better functional outcome that people tend to have. And so, you know, public health wise, this is very, very important. That's really helpful. I think I've heard fast. So yeah, it probably is used many places because it makes sense. Why or what would cause a stroke? What would cause that blockage? Yeah, so the cause of stroke generally have been known for, you know, several decades. And the general cause cannot be simply put to two things. You cannot have a blockage in the artery. And so as a result, the blood flow doesn't get to the brain. Why is blood flow important to the brain? Blood flow is important because the blood carries the nutrients and oxygen and it supplies the brain. Now, interesting fact is that, you know, generally the brain weighs about 2% of your body weight. So it's not very heavy, okay? But it requires 20% of your blood flow every minute. So meaning it is an organ that requires a high level of oxygen and nutrients to function on a day-to-day basis, okay? And so if you have a, um, a blockage in one of the pipes, think of the vessels as a pipe in one of the pipes, and you have decreased blood flow, you're going to lead to starvation of these cells. And as a result, the, the abnormal uh, sequelae or the abnormal phenomenon of not getting enough nutrients and oxygen to the cells, cells will lead to cell death. And you can have signs and symptoms or manifestations of the stroke. Now, that in itself is called an ischemic stroke. And that is the most common type of stroke that there is across the world. So various populations and have different percentages, but you know, it's about uh, 85% of people will have a ischemic stroke. And that is usually the stroke that if you get into hospital in time, you can be treated with either medication to break up the clot, or you can have a catheter placed into the blood vessel to take out the clot and restore blood flow. And that's why time is brain. That's why it comes in. The other type of stroke less commonly is a hemorrhagic stroke, or just basically there's a weakness in the blood vessel wall and the blood vessel because of hypertension usually or abnormality in the vessel wall, like an aneurysm, the blood vessel bursts and blood either goes into or around the brain tissue and it you have signs and symptoms of a stroke. So there are two different um, types of strokes. A stroke is just a broad heading. And of course, it, these are kind of the, the, these are kind of the general outlines for what can cause a stroke. Thank you. That's helpful. What can we do to avoid it? I heard you say, for example, hypertension. Are there ways we can live our life or something that will help stay Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, a lot of stroke management is initially. So you have preventative medicine and you have actual treatment of the stroke. So if you can prevent a stroke, that is the best thing in the world. You know, this is one of the most devastating things and diseases in the world. It leaves persons functionally impaired, you know, unable to work, needing a lot of caring. You know, you might be the breadwinner of your family and all of a sudden now you have a stroke and now the dynamics in your family change. So a lot of studies and a lot of public health campaigns have directed towards helping to try to prevent this problem, which is very important. 
But I think one of the key things that I've noticed before I answer your question is that we focus more on identification of the stroke, such as your fast mnemonic, versus really pushing home what can prevent this stroke. Okay. So some general guidelines to prevent a stroke would be, you know, in simple terms, lifestyle management or lifestyle changes. So I'm a very simple man when it comes to these things because I like to think about these things very simply, right? So the first thing in lifestyle management yeah, is how you eat. So if you think about the food that you're going to put in your body, so, okay, you know, doctor, what kind of food are you going to put in your body? You know, what we have found over the years is actually the Mediterranean diet is pretty good. We know that it has less saturated fats inside. We know that it has more fruits, high in vegetables, all those colorful fruits and vegetables, those antioxidants um, that help, and those help to protect the vessel wall, keep things healthy. You know, it nuts, olive oils, low in red meat. You know, even if, you, if your meat eater is low in red meat, those kind of things really help in terms of what you can do initially in your diet. No, I'm not saying go and eat like a Mediterranean all the time, but, you know, if you eat a diet high in red meat, you can start cutting it down and it really helps, you know, adding more vegetables to your diet, buying more fruit at the supermarket, you know, eating less processed meat, you know, less canned meat. And if at all, transfer your actual protein base to plant based. That's what we know, you know, is so that is that's highly important because it has proper fats, has proper nutrients that you actually need low in cholesterol. That's the kind of stuff that we, we want as well. So that's the general diet. Now with any diet, what do you drink with your diet, right? You know, I'm from the Caribbean, so we generally have to drink something with our food. What I tend to advise is water is best. Okay. And, or any beverage that is low in processed, uh, you know, these sugars. So it's very important because you have so much processed sugars that are in most commodities nowadays that you can you can consume so much sugar from a day-to-day point of view that you don't even know what is going on. And it's very important to just be cognizant of how, how much sugar is in a can of Coke, for instance, versus, you know, instead of drinking, you know, 10 cans of Coke, you know, just be careful. So, so that's two of the big things. What's the other thing that Caribbean people love to put in their food is what is, is the salt. You know, my wife and I were looking at a video on, on cooking and and some of the person said a pinch of salt and the person just really, really let the pinch is a massive pinch, you know, and the first comment in YouTube was like, you know, that's a lot of salt that you're at. And so this is a cooking show. So generally what we, what we tend to advise persons is that you want less than one teaspoon of salt a day. Okay. If you don't have to use salt, great, because most most things that you will cook with will have some sodium and salt inside. But if you have to add it, it's less than one you know, teaspoon of salt a day. And if you're a measurer, it's usually less than five grams. I don't know who measures salt, but you know, that's just that's generally what I remember. So lifestyle changes. So we talk about diet. We talk about you know what you drink, uh, how much sugar, to, uh, how much salt to put in. Why that's important is because you know, salt leads to uh, build up these things, leads to hypertension. You know, hypertension is a silent killer. And if you can, if you can decrease the amount of red meat and the amount of fats and the amount of salt that you're eating every day and increase your water intake, you've literally half of the battle against hypertension right there. You know, you've decreased your risk significantly. The other things that are quite important that always needs to be mentioned is, you know, exercise, smoking, and drinking alcohol. So exercise, 
you know, most of us, if you have a hectic lifestyle and you're coming home late from work, you know, you don't have any time for exercise, but generally what the body tends to require is a lot of aerobic ex um, exercise. So, you know, 20 to 30 minutes a day, you know, three to four times a week is, should be sufficient. Um, and you want to keep your heart rate up, keep it in an aerobic zone. Weight, weight, the weight of the person is not, it's not really a good measure because we all have different body types. And so what it is that you want to do is maintain a healthy, constant weight for you while not being hypertensive. And, you know, you're, you're going to the doctor, check your blood pressure, going to your labs, check your labs are normal. That's healthy. You know, smoking, you know, smoking, what I've known is that across the world is, is we've been decreasing the the um, percentage of who smokes or what they smoke. And so they've had really good you know, anti-smoking campaigns, but usually if you, you're trying to quit, you know, getting a nicotine patch regime is very important. And, you know, the general practitioner tends, can help you to quit smoking. And most people don't know this. If you're struggling, you can actually go to your GP or your general practitioner and say, here, I'm really struggling with this. And they say, okay, we can put you on this program and give you some nicotine patches to really help you, you know? And then, and then of course, alcohol, like how much alcohol is, is um, satisfactory or can you drink? Now, if you can avoid it, great, avoid it. But if you have to drink alcohol, no more than two drinks, um, two drinks a night. And that's general recommendation. Of course, if you're pregnant, Please don't drink at all. And that's all lifestyle changes. That has nothing to do with, you're not doing anything difficult. That is every day you wake up and you do it, you know, you, you try to live the best life that you can from, a, you know, eating, drinking, running kind of point of view and get back to a more active lifestyle is what you really want. And that really decreases your risk of stroke and heart disease and all these sequelae, you know. Do you ever find someone telling you, Oh, can't you just write me a prescription? Wouldn't that be easier? You want me to change my diet? You want me of to course. exercise? <laughs> no, 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 absolutely. And, you know, for me, I'm a very realistic person when it comes to healthcare. And, you know, we all have had our biases from our families and, you know, our life experiences. So you can't tell someone to do all these things and then get upset with them when, you know, 90% of it doesn't happen. So for me, when I'm doing public health uh, initiatives, I, I tend to advise persons, listen, I want you to make progress. And progress sometimes is very slow. And what does that mean? You pick one thing. I've told you so much. I don't expect you to change overnight. If you can change overnight, great. If you can sustain the change, that's even more impressive. But realistically, it's very hard to do. You pick something to quit. For instance, if it is that you are going to say, okay, I'm going to cut down from, you know, two packs of cigarettes to half a pack of cigarettes in the next month, do that. If it is that you can quit altogether, great. But you want to be going in the right direction. Alcohol is the same. Food is the same. You know, even exercise, saying, listen, I'm going to try to be a little more active today and do that. Now, one is not to substitute for another, but it is a it is helps to get the ball rolling and to the healthy you become in one area is you'll realize the benefits. Hey, I can do this now, or I'm feeling great now. I can do, you know, I can, it's a more wholesome lifestyle. So really and truly, if you really had to simplify how to prevent a stroke, it is just wholesome living. You know, it is really wholesome living. It's stop, you know, it, it is really becoming more active, going outside, you know, think about mental health and you think about physical health and it's all interlinked. And to be honest, the way to make a lot of these changes is to be healthier in general, mind and body and spirit. 
What are some other common neurological conditions that show up a lot in people? And are there any different tips on how to avoid apart from what you've told us so far? From a neurosurgical standpoint, we treat a lot of people with headaches, uh, back pain, right? So those are two of the most common conditions that a neurosurgeon will treat. And a lot of our treatment, a lot of our management is more aimed at a specific problem rather than preventative. There's some things that we can prevent, which I can, which I'll go into. So for instance, headache wise, if you have a, a, a child who uh, is playing a sport and has hit their head and sustained a concussion, and what's the concussion? It means a child, does a child have a headache? Is that a concussion? No, if a child is playing or an adult, anyone is playing and they sustain some sort of a uh, severe head injury, which has made them, or hit on the head, which has made them dizzy and feel like if the world is spinning or if they're a bit unsure about their surroundings or a headache that is not quickly resolving, then that person needs to stop playing that sport, okay? And that person needs to sit out. And that principle is, is called the return to play principle. And it's based on second hit theory, meaning all these terms is if you have one concussion, the likelihood of getting a second concussion can lead to serious brain problems, serious brain issues, whether it be emotional, physical, you know, mental in terms of how you concentrate. So it can lead to serious consequences. So if you experience this, if you're playing whatever sport and you get hit so hard that you all of a sudden feeling dizzy and so on, you need to stop and sit out that game. And they're usually specific protocols if you're on a coaching team or if you're part of a team that has a coach which will say okay this is when you can go back to play and it's very important to know when to go back to play or not because sometimes you know within a day or two is not a short enough time and if you can sustain another concussion afterwards so that's like preventative medicine in a way another thing i can think about in that realm is wearing helmets you know, when you're cycling, wear your helmet. And a key point is if you're involved in an accident, okay? For instance, if you're riding a bike um, and you fall off whatever reason, you hit the head on the pavement and you, you see your helmet, you know, this is an expensive helmet that you've bought, okay? And you hit the head, right? And, you know, it has a little scratch or a little graze. Most people say, oh, the helmet is still good. No, the helmet is not. You need to throw the helmet away and you need to buy a new helmet. A helmet is only good for one crash at 15 to 20 miles per hour. And that's very important. And the last thing you need is to have a helmet that has undergone a crash, is structurally weak, and it doesn't protect you if you continue wearing it. So that's a key point. I can think about as well is elderly persons with, with falls, actually, because normal aging process with anyone, you know, our eyes may go, our balance may become abnormal, and having handrails in the house may be, you know, important you know, moving the carpet on the ground that, you know, granny can't be able to see or, you know, she's going to trip on is very important because it's going to prevent you from falling and cracking the neck and coming to see a, a surgeon, you know, or needing a collar. So, you know, in the bath, putting the anti-slide uh, mats is very important. You know, those simple things are quite, are things that we can do in our day-to-day -day life to prevent these things from happening, falls in the elderly, you know, making sure there's a well-lit room, you know, change the bulbs in the room, but, you know, <laughs> make, you know, add a light. And it really helps overall, I think, uh, in terms of a headache point of view. And, you know, in the spinal world, generally, 
we think about leg pain, back pain. Now, most back pain are not treated, do not need surgery. And most back pain can be helped and assisted with appropriate physiotherapy and strengthening exercises of their the ab, you know, abdominal exercises, the core strengthening exercises. And that's, you know, if anyone was to come to me with a back problem, like a herniated disc or something, and they come in to see me in clinic, if it's not an um, acute medical emergency or acute neurosurgical emergency, the first thing I'm going to say is, okay, you need to go and do six weeks of six to eight weeks of physiotherapy before you're even eligible for an operation. And that's my advice in 90% of the cases. And majority of back pain or even bulging discs do not need surgery. So it's very important to all these lifestyle changes can have a huge impact, you know, these day-to-day changes. I hope that answered your question. That's perfect. You said a lot of great things. The helmet. It's only good for one crash. Brand new to me. Never heard that. And I'm so glad you talked about hitting your head. I don't know if you saw, but the other day, the guy from Full House died. And then they said, uh, yeah, Bob Saget. Oh, no. He was found dead in his hotel room or something. And then later on, I saw in the news that the coroner, whoever determined that it was like he had hit his head sometime the night before and like didn't get it checked out. And then there was, and an actress like many years ago went skiing, she hit her head, but then she went back to her room and said, oh, I'm just going to lie down. It's not that big a deal. So yeah. how do you know, actually, when, oh, I just hit my head, it'll be over in 15 minutes versus yeah. I should actually yeah. go get this checked out? That is a very, very good question. So I think my one rule to everyone is if you're concerned, check it out. That's my one rule. Okay. So don't make anyone tell you otherwise. Yeah. So if you think, and by checking it out, doesn't necessarily mean getting a scan. It can mean phoning a healthcare professional or, you know, nurse, a GP, doctor, accident emergency. I said, listen, I've hit my head. I don't have any bleeding or anything. I'm sorry, any, you know, what's not going on, but I'm really worried. The headache is really, really, really bad. What is your advice? That's what I mean. Check it out. Rather than saying, oh, it's nothing, and go and sit down back. Because based on your history and based on the, the, the events of what happened, that person might say, listen, just to err on the side of caution, let's, let's get you in here. Let's see you properly. And remember, whenever you hit your head, where you think that is perceived as normal, a person that is trained medically may pick up subtle weakness or subtle changes in your voice or subtle way in how you behave and said, listen, you may need a scan. And if you get a scan, then more more likely that tells you what is going on. Now, not everyone that hits their head needs a scan. And that's why it's very important to seek medical attention when it is that you generally um, are very worried. If you hit your head while intoxicated, there's certain, certain situations where I think more than likely you may need to err on the side of caution more than saying this is just a little bump. This is what I'm saying now. So if you're in, intoxicated and you got in a fight or you fall down the stairs or you slipped and you bang your head or something, you don't know what's going on. Either yourself, the people around you, your loved ones, you know, should ch- get that checked out. It's better to be safe and sorry, to be honest. And majority of times it will come out as nothing. Nothing will be the problem because your skull is very, you know, is very solid and your skull is there to protect your brain and everything inside. But of course, sometimes the brain is so delicate that even the skull can't protect it. And that's why you should be able to check that out. That's a key, key area, as well as in persons who who are unable to express themselves properly. 
So persons with learning disabilities, persons who may or undergo an injury, you have to have a, a higher level of suspicion for, for head trauma if they knock their head for whatever reason. And then you realize, hey, you know, he, this guy is sleeping. He's a little more drowsy, or a little more sleepy than usual. He's not, if he normally wakes up at eight o'clock every day for the past 20 years and suddenly sleeping at 10 o'clock, they probably need to go to the doctor. That's, you know, so change in behavior, persistent headaches. If a head injury is associated with nausea and vomiting, so especially early morning vomiting, first thing in the morning, headache wakes you up and you start vomiting, you feel a little better, you should probably check that out. Okay. If there's associated with weakness, you know, any seizure-like activity, meaning shaking, abnormal shaking, you know, wetting the bed, you know, those slurring of the speech, those are key things that would say, if you hit your head, check them out. It's better to be safe than sorry. And I think that would save a lot of worry for one, the patient, they would understand the diagnosis, what is happening. And it would, you would get treatment faster than saying, okay, this has happened 40 years ago. You know, the headache is not getting better. Let me finally go and check it out. But I'm, I'm generally a very cautious person when it comes to these things. So that's, that, that is my general advice. Thank you. Fair enough. Yeah. What kinds of questions do you think patients should ask but often don't? Patients should understand why it is that they're going to the doctor. I'll hopefully answer this question by example. If a patient knows that they're going to the doctor for, say, a back pain, or leg pain or whatever it is. And they are generally not interested in knowing what's wrong with them. It becomes very hard to treat people. So they should have an interest in what is going on with them. So, you know, I think you, you get more out of healthcare if a patient is more active in their, not only in wanting to know what is wrong with them, but also being part of the decision-making process. Because care is individualized and that is how it should be. So if you approach a doctor with a problem and you are seeking advice, you know, what could this possibly be? I think that is completely reasonable to, un unless you are satisfied with the answer and the explanation that, you know, that you should continue seeking a different opinion. Now, I think if a patient knows what they're coming to a doctor for, but they're kind of like apprehensive about finding out what is wrong with them? I think that is maybe that's a bit of a myth because most doctors will explain what is going on to a patient. Any doctor worth their salt generally will tell a patient what is going on. And they should do it in the most simplest way or the most complex way, whichever the patient prefers, to understand as best as possible. I use diagrams. I use, I would go on the internet and I'd go on Google and find images of an aneurysm or these kind of things. If I'm talking about one thing to make everyone that is present understand where we are in the treatment of that disease or the condition. And for me, the more information you can give people in that manner that make them understand, they become quite relaxed with how you are managing the condition and are willing to be themselves. So it is a large part of the doctor's responsibility to kind of meet the patient that is a little bit hesitant halfway. And then after, the, if the patient sees that the doctor is willing to do this and stuff, don't be afraid to ask the doctor questions. No question is stupid when it comes to your health. 
you know, you might be, oh, can I drink this versus this? No, well, I, you know, I don't know the answer to this, or I know the answer to this. Maybe you shouldn't, you should. You ask the question because you're going to the doctor for one problem. And you, you need to see this problem for every single thing that there is. So I think that is very key. I think what if you're in hospital and you are not being updated regularly, which happens, unfortunately, that is time to get some courage. And that is time to say, okay, if your nurse is the person that you see the most, Say, listen, nurse, I, you know, I've been here for two days or three days. I really don't know what is going on with me. I see a lot of doctors coming in and out. They've been talking. I don't understand quite what's happening. One of the doctors tried to explain to me, but I still don't get it. Is it possible for them to come do this again? And, you know, nine out of 10 times, you're going to have a doctor in your room within a few hours explaining what the condition is and going over every single thing with you again, whether it be from a junior level all the way to a senior level. So I think having patients know that it is their right and they should have a, a someone that is trained explain to them what is going on is quite important but also usually the nurse is the first port of saying listen I, you know the doctor is intimidating at you know can you ask him to explain this thing to me you know there's no excuse for not relaying information properly but but you'd be surprised that little nudge in the right direction can go a far away to improve communication in doctors and patients in, in terms of your experience as well as going through you know this this condition that you're going through because for you it is you know your life you know it is it's very important you are the only one in the hospital that you really care about and you know that 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 may not be too evident or exp that may not be expressed in a way to the doctor who has to go and see, you know, 25 other patients. So it is completely fine to, to ask for that. Um, and there's no doctor that is going to say, no, I'm too busy to do this. It, it usually doesn't happen, but it's usually, I think it, once you identify that it really helps communication. Yeah. I love the way you said that you're the only person in the hospital that you care about. It's true. Like this is my first aneurysm or whatever. I don't know what's going on. I know this is like, the 500 one you've dealt with so it's not as stressful for you but for me this oh. is the first one. Oh, you're absolutely correct and you'd be surprised what usually transpires after a conversation like that is you start explaining what you have been doing as a doctor throughout the day or since admission and sometimes and people are quite reasonable you know everyone it's very rare that you're going to have an unreasonable doctor and a patient it's very you know sometimes it happens but it's very very rare and you'll be surprised how once that communicate, you know, if I go into the room and the communication starts happening and you start expressing, well, you know, Mr. So-and-so or Miss So-and-so, I've, you know, very, I apologize for not doing this, but, or not speaking to you about this sooner, but this is a situation I've been dealing with. You realize that people are quite sympathetic to doctors as well, or nurses or the, the healthcare staff. And then you, you start seeing both sides of the coin and you realize that simple act of kindness from that from the patient as well, can go quite a long way in a doctor who is managing a lot of stresses. So I think it can really help actually. And not a lot of people realize that, hey, healthcare professionals do need this kind of support as well. We're here to support patients. That's our first priority, but it, you know, it's a full circle. And I think that's where medicine is going these days. And it, not only is it individualized, but it's, it's more holistic care. Very good. As a specialist, do you get offended when patients ask you for a second opinion or do you encourage? I never get offended by that question, actually. I encourage it if they uh, are disagreeing with my management or they're disagreeing with how I'm explaining something. I think, you know, everyone has a right to good health care. 
having everyone has a right of has a right to understand what is going on with them. And if I can't deliver good health care or make them understand, well, I will do my best to find someone that can. Because, you know, going through a health condition, whether it be life-threatening or not, is always very daunting. It's a lot of stress, it's a lot of anxiety, it's disrupting your normal life, it's disrupting your family's life. You need support, you know, you're thinking about, okay, if something goes wrong here, how will my family cope? You know, you have a lot of stresses that you don't need from the person that you're seeking help from to be not to be a nice person, you know, not to be capable. You you want them to kind of be a human. You want them to understand what you're going through. You want them to be a healer. You also want to be a doctor and to be a doctor and even a surgeon. You know, a surgeon is, surgeon is an extension of doctor. To be doctor first and physician first is to be caring to the person. That is, for me personally, I, I'd encourage it. You know, if you encourage persons to say, okay, you know, I don't agree. Doctor, I would like another opinion. That's completely fine. Do you, would you like me to refer you to someone else? All right, I'm fine. I'm happy to do that. I think most doctors should practice that because generally you don't know everything and generally you may not be the doctor for that particular patient, even if you could treat the condition or not. It is the patient that you need to treat, not the condition. You know, And if you treat the patient, mm-hmm. the condition tends to fall into place generally. And so that's where being a human and being a doctor comes into place. And you know, knowing your humility, knowing your, where you stand in terms of your knowledge and what kind of care would that, that you know, I would like to receive if I was a patient, it really helps to set that tone. I love that. How do you try to reduce the intimidation in your patients and make them feel comfortable? I try to speak to patients like how I would generally speak to anyone, to be honest, with a level of respect, with a level of uh, jovial nature and a level of understanding. And I think as a doctor, you have to listen quite a fair bit. And it is active listening rather than really, oh, let me just see your name on a chart and see what problem you initially have. And let me look at a scan and let me tell you what's wrong. You know, it's really active listening. And I think that really helps put people at ease. And if, a, you know, if healthcare professionals listen more, you'll realize that they'll tell you exactly what is wrong without even knowing what the problem is by what people tell you. And it's quite important, at least for me, you know, I used to do a lot of volunteering and I used to work with underage, uh, underprivileged kids. And, you know, the one key thing is people just want to be heard and people just want to be listened to and given, you know, for you to understand where they're coming from. And it puts people at ease, you know, of course you have to, it's always good not to be very harsh with how you speak to people. And if you can make them smile, despite of whatever they're going, they have going on, it tends to ease the mood a little bit. And then you can address the seriousness with the condition. But it's always good to appreciate the human side of a person, not because a person has a condition means that they're, that condition makes them know that they're a person that has a condition, you know, and you're there to help them to overcome that problem rather than just to treat the condition and forget about the person, you know, because it's always, for instance, in stroke management, we talked about stroke earlier, if a person doesn't understand the rehab process for a stroke, it's going to be very difficult for them to be motivated to want to rehab better. And so you're not only treating the stroke, you have to treat the person and you have to talk to their families and encourage the support that is happening so you can have that holistic type of treatment overall. You're kind of playful. Do you, I try, <laughs> like, do you actually put 
<laughs> you are? <laughs> no, like, I mean, your answer like, is great, but because I know you a little bit, I'm trying to think like, would you embed song lyrics into your, <laughs> into your oh, yes, discussions? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, up the, up the other day, there was a patient who was quite anxious and she had a very treatable neurosurgical condition and we were going to perform surgery and and she was she's very, very anxious. And, you know, and I walked into the room because the nurse had called me and said, you know, doctor, this patient is going for surgery, very anxious. She would like to speak to someone. Can you please come and assist us? I said, okay, no problem. I'll be right down. And so when I when I went in, my how... I interact with generally anyone is, you know, I introduce myself and say, hi, my name is uh, Mikhail. And what's your name? Okay. You know, pull down my mask because you always have to wear masks in the hospital. And, oh, this is how I look without a mask, just so you can see, put it on quickly. And then, you know, she, then the patient was like, oh, you're very good looking. And I made a joke and I was like, oh, you're so kind. You know, I think you're, you're just reflecting your own thoughts and everyone smiled. And then of course, anxiety was about, okay, you know, talk a little bit about conditions because the anxiety comes from not knowing what is next or what to expect. Mm -hmm. So, you know, going through from beginning to end, why it is that you, you have this condition, why, what has happened, why you need surgery or what are the treatment options and why we chose surgery and that, that will benefit you. And then and then I said something about in Bob Marley, I said, you know, every little thing is going to be all right. I said, miss, do you know Bob Marley? And then, so she started smiling. The physiotherapist started smiling. And then after a while, it, it, it kind of it made the room a lot lighter. Yeah. And then afterward, you know, even the staff, you come out of the room and, you know, the nurses and the, the staff around just are in a little bit better mood when you're a bit more playful and joyful, mm-hmm. even though you, you know it's a serious condition and you have to be serious. And it is not the seriousness that you're trying to take away. It is more of the understanding that listen we are here to help you uh you are in good hands you know we will do our very best to make you come out of this and go back to your family and make sure that you're okay that is our job that's our passion that's what we're going to do i'm here right now to help you with your anxieties which is completely completely reasonable and this it comes back to that seeing people for people you know treating the patient and not the condition and you treat the patient, you get a patient to smile. They'd be like, oh, great. My back pain is better. Uh, I feel great already. Okay, great. <laughs> you don't need surgery. <laughs> Do you have any myths or misconceptions that you feel are necessary to dispel general medicine, neuro- neurosurgery in particular that you deal with? Where on uh, earth are people getting these ideas? Uh, you know? I th- yeah, I try to change I try to change this in my day-to-day practice, but the most common misconception is that neurosurgeons, you can't talk to your neurosurgeon, you know, and neurosurgeons are very, very stern, very militant kind of characters, you know, they're, they're above speaking to, which I think it's, that is certainly incorrect. I think, I think if you are a good doctor, it will permeate into whatever field you're going to. And I think people need to understand that we are here to help you. And people need to understand that, you know, you ask your questions and we will answer you the best of your abilities. You know, they might have, of course, every person may have a different personality trait, but overall it is, you know, our responsibility to get health care, get you back to where you are, provide health care, you know. And the myth of neurosurgeons is that, you, you know, we're very... You know, everyone knows the joke, the rocket scientist versus neurosurgeon joke, right? But it is a field that I think 
it's a very caring field. I think anyone that cares for any neuro, neurological condition has to be a very caring person. And the reason why I say this is because you, you, you really see um, the worst of how, or you really see how crippling disease can make people and how much life can be robbed from people with that, that have these conditions. And in order to treat persons and get them, or to, you know, sometimes you may treat a stroke and a person still has a weakness, severe weakness. And you may, you may say, great, the treatment worked, but you're still weak. And now your second phase of treatment begins, which is rehab. And it takes that level of humanity to really get the person back to square one. And I think most persons think that neurosurgeons are callous up to the fact that we, that we don't appreciate what is going on. We don't see the other side of the coin just because of what we do is, you know, long surgeries and tough, difficult surgeries. We're operating on the brain, we're operating on the spine. Yes, we're all those things. And we're doing those things because we, we care. We care to see you back, you know, playing rugby or playing football or, you know, driving to the supermarket. We care about these things and that's why we do it, you know. And I think that pushes the envelope in how we deliver care. There's a lot of we and I, but it, it is true how I think the field looks in it because it's a very ever-changing field. It's a very technological driven field. And, you know, we, we're just trying to have the best outcomes for people. And I think, you know, one of the biggest myths is, you know, we're, we're unable to be talked to or, you know, we don't care, but that's certainly not that. I don't think that's certainly not that correct. How long is your average consultation time? The NHS, which is the National Health Service in England, consultation, consultations can last from 20 minutes to 45 minutes. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah. yeah. So, but it, it varies from region to region uh, in terms of, you know, if you're in one country to the next, I should, I should say. And in this consultation, generally, you you know, the shorter consultations are for repeat patients who need an update in their labs or their imaging studies or the scans. And the 45 minutes is for if you're a brand new patient that you need to tell me every single thing. Generally, that is the case. For pediatrics, I know sometimes we, we tend to do an hour. So we t- the, you may see in one clinic, which may be you can see from four patients to eight patients, no longer, because, you know, you don't want your concentration to waver for seeing different persons and you want persons to have a good level of of care throughout and good decision-making. So we tend to keep those consultations like that, that bit. We talked briefly about, well, at least the word aneurysm came up. Can you tell us briefly what that is? Okay, so an aneurysm is an abnormal ballooning out of a vessel wall. Generally, it comes as a result of either atherosclerosis, which is you know one of those disease uh, lifestyle diseases. So if you eat too much fatty food, if you have hypertension, diabetes, these kind of things, you know you probably have atherosclerotic pl- plaques along your vessel wall or the pipe walls. And what this does is changes and makes the vessel wall weak. Because the vessel wall has muscle inside and it's made up of other structurally relevant materials that uh, changes over time. So an aneurysm is when the vessel no longer is able to maintain its integrity and, you know, it balloons out. And that ballooning is a weakness. So if you couple a ballooning out or abnormal blood vessel with hypertension and normal blood pressure is 120, 80, of course, this varies over a lot because... What may be normal for you, maybe not normal for me, but generally anything less than 130 is considered, you know, normal pressure. 130 systolics are the top number. 
if you have hypertension on top of this abnormal blood vessel, it can rupture and you can have, and that's what we call a ruptured aneurysm. And in neurosurgery is one of the most uh, serious and life-threatening conditions that we have to treat. And that's one of the forms of stroke that we commonly treat. In some parts of the world, we treat it with clipping the aneurysm or putting a small metal clip over the, over the base of the balloon, essentially, and remake or reconstruct the blood vessel wall. But in other parts, we pass, usually treat it from the groin. So it's not open surgery anymore. It's usually with a, you treat these aneurysms with a catheter being placed within the abnormal balloon to seal it off. And that's been one of the, re- the newest technologies and revolutionized care and how we treat these things or treat a form of stroke in the last um, decade or two. So, Mikhail, we're at the end. Do you have Watch any? <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> After five hours. After five mm-hmm. hours. This is light work for you. I mean, you've operated for longer. <laughs> Do you have any closing thoughts? Well, well, first of all, I really appreciate what you're doing with this. I really appreciate you having me. I think it is massively cool to know that, you know, I have someone in another part of healthcare that's promoting another part of healthcare while I'm doing something else, you know, in, in treating and to bring a different facet of health to the patient. That's very, very important. And the things that you are trying to bring and what this podcast is trying to bring is not what we generally tend to think about as you know, medical practitioners off the bat, you know, you're trying to bring that understanding and that holistic preventive measures, preventive medicine, while we learn to treat diseases, you're trying to prevent them. And I think that's quite important to the average population. And, you know, and I think, I guess one of the things I will say, you know, in closing is that every patient needs to be heard. And I think that you should be an active participant in your care. So, you want your doctor to understand what it is you're feeling. You want your doctor to understand the anxiety about your condition and why it is that it's affecting your home or your home life, your job, and allow your doctor to be a doctor and to come and help you to get over those fears. Uh, that's a, you know that's one of our that's one of our founding and grounding principles. And then don't be afraid to ask those questions if you don't understand. Don't be afraid to say, listen, I don't really understand. You've spoken quite a fair bit, doctor, and I appreciate you. You have all those degrees, like a thermometer, but I don't understand what exactly is going on. Uh, can you please run that by me once again? <laughs> I think that's completely, completely fair approach. And if you don't understand, you know, there's many other ways for for us to explain things to patients, for you know, for family members and whatnot to understand. And you're never alone in the healthcare journey. You all have friends and family, and the more I encourage you to get, uh, it helps to get you to better health. And even if you, even if the condition is so bad, or is, is even if the condition unfortunately can't be treated as effectively as you always wanted at least you know that there's persons to care for you and you have this caring community. And sometimes that's enough as well, you know, is to get that that sort of thinking behind it. You treat the patient and not the condition, yeah? Yeah, that's great. All those degrees like a thermometer. That was funny. So one of the last things I'll say is, yeah, healing is, is also quite uh, reciprocal in that, you know, a doctor may try to overcome, try to educate and try to treat a certain condition, but also the patient also has to give back by understanding and offering a sense of a caring smile or a thank, being thankful. That goes a long way 
towards the doctor moving on to even seeing another patient. And I think that's when caring is reciprocal and healing is reciprocal. So and that is quite important because then we become our brother's keeper rather than just one person giving and the other one taking. That take forward thing, I guess, of you like getting that positive energy and taking it with you to the next person. Oh, absolutely correct. Then the sun shine a little brighter on someone's life who may or may not know they need it you know thank you so much for coming to the good health cafe dr DeSantos. it was lovely to have you <laughs> absolutely Peter. no problem at all i hope you enjoyed that episode as much as i did some key takeaways included the fast mnemonic for recognizing a stroke which is face arm speech and time that a helmet is only good for one accident and that healing is reciprocal. Don't forget, I have created a downloadable medication list for you. So to get it, all you have to do is go to the link in the show notes and click download your free medication list. I hope you learned something from the episode and until next time, see you in the cafe later. Bye.